the thing that I really like about NIAC is that 20 year goal is a little bit more down the line, a little bit more exciting. It's not just I need a new type of screw that works in zero G. It's warp drives or shields or swarm probes, reactors and stuff. And so you can kind of have fun with it and it's more exciting to to look at. So I'm a huge fan of the NIAC program. It's time for another episode of the Cold Star Project. I'm here with Dr. Troy Howe. He has a PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Idaho. Uh, fairly long ago, far away, his focus is radioisotope space propulsion. And he spent four years as a research scientist at something called the Center for Nuclear or Space Nuclear Research, which I had not heard of before. So we're going to dig into that a little bit later. But the reason I wanted to connect with you, Troy, was that uh, you have gotten um, a NIAC grant, phase one grant, um, and that was very interesting to me. I went through a list of all the folks who got NIAC uh, funding, mostly because of Dr. Joel Sircell's project and my research in that. And I went, oh, this is a thing. Ah, I see, you know, and how it's categorized and that. So thanks for being here today. Oh, well, thanks for having me. You bet. So let's dig right into it. Uh, you have gotten funding for something called, and this is NASA's Innovative Advanced Concepts. That's what NIAC stands for, Phase 1 uh, Spear Probe Project. It's one of 18 projects funded in April 2019. Tell us about it, please. Okay, so the Spear Probe is a Swarm Probe Enabling ATEG Reactor. And the acronym inside the acronym for ATEG is an Advanced Thermoelectric Generator. So the idea is we are using nuclear electric propulsion with a thermoelectric conversion, which makes a very small and very light spacecraft that we can send to the outer planets or anywhere in the solar system. Usually, uh, nuclear electric propulsion is a great way to get around in theory, but because it has such a heavy mass for a reactor, um, you have to justify that by having a large ship with a lot of, of payload, and so, you end up with flagship class missions and very large, grandiose things to do, and no one can afford it because it's kind of too far out there. So our idea was to shrink it down, make it light, make our advanced conversion technologies applicable to this so that now you can launch it on a uh, Minotaur 4 or a smaller rocket, and it can just fly out to different planets and do whatever mission you, you need to. We are focusing on um, going to Europa and looking for life. So if you're familiar with Europa, it's an icy moon with an ocean underneath, and occasionally the ice on the surface will open and let a plume of water out. And if you fly through that plume and look for organic material, you can decide if there are signs of life on a different planet. Right. Very, very cool. Um, 2010 Space Odyssey <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the plot. Uh, that, that's very, very cool to be doing something in real life like that. So, a swarm of, of uh, nuclear propulsion run CubeSats uh, is intended to go to Europa here. And, and so you're at the phase of demonstrating that this technology works, is that right? Well, we've, the, the NIAC program, um, as I'm sure that you've become familiar with, uh, is about uh, farther out ideas. So the small mm -hmm. business grants, the SBIRs, are, they kind of want you to start building something and make a project and get it into a functioning small business. Whereas the NIACs are supposed to be, I think, about 20 years out. So you, you do a lot of modeling and calculations and theoretical work. Mm -hmm. So our concept that makes this work, the ATAG system, is a thermoelectric generator that's actually doped with a radioisotope material. And if you add 
nuclear isotopes anything, you know, it gets bigger and better and makes giant ants or whatever you need. So uh, our conversion efficiency increases quite a bit. And that because it's a uh, nuclear technology in a conversion method, we're not really able to start building those right off the bat. So still a lot of modeling, a lot of testing. We've made some great progress and everything looks really good, but we're not going to have a functioning uh, probe or reactor or even conversion system for years down the line. Okay. Well, tell us about that, that project timeline then, those milestones. What does that look like? So we've got, um, we've done some tests on some materials already. We were fortunate enough to go down to Kansas State University and they have a trigger reactor there. And so we were able to use one of their ports and show that our theory worked. And so we put materials down there, we irradiated it. The material properties changed in favor of the thermoelectric generation. And so everything looks really good. And that was one of the goals of the phase one was to make as much progress on the theory and show the feasibility. Uh, the other things for the phase one are showing that the, the findings in the model support the cost and to develop this mission profile. And then the phase two will have most of the uh, really hard milestones of answering a lot of the questions. And our, our goal at the end of the phase two is to build a thermoelectric generator, take it back to K-State or a different test reactor, show that it empirically increases in efficiency as we're operating it in this radiation field. And so hmm. by the end of that, we should have a prototype that shows the concept without a question. After that, well, then we have to start manufacturing these. You either have to have them in a reactor to get that radiation, or you have to dope it with a radioisotope, which is difficult to handle and hard to get a hold of. So that's another, I would say, three to five years down the road to actually start producing something that you can take to NASA or somewhere else that's interested and say, here's my, my project, take it and do something cool. Okay. So as of, of this NIAC phase one supported uh, project segment, how do you know you're done and then can go back for more funding or something for the, for the next step? Right. So we've, we've closed the architecture and we've gone through and um, developed the, the spacecraft, the reactor, the neutronics is shielding the mass and the cost. And so we have shown that that is feasible and where we wanted it to be. Um, and then we have the model of our thermoelectrics functioning. So we wanted to get a computer model. We wanted to get our spacecraft designed and we wanted to get our mission and trajectory done. And so we've accomplished all those and are finishing up our final report now. Hmm. Quick. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just April, 2019 till now and we're in January, 2020. So not too long at all. I, I, I am curious, uh, because I have no personal experience with this. I, I have uh, been on the issuing side of grant funding uh, with municipality, but I have, and I've written grant proposals, but I've never done a NIAC one for NASA. So I'm curious what that proposal process looks like, what's involved and what do you have to do? I mean, what's the song and dance of this? Right, the, uh, the NIAC proposal process is actually one of the best ones that I've been involved in. Uh, NASA uses this website called Inspires and it's very user-friendly. You log in and it has uh, you know your profile and places to upload your documents and tells you what you need and what you need to put in there. So that is very smooth. I really appreciate their stuff. Um, the biggest thing that I've noticed with any proposal process is answer as many questions and get as much work done ahead of time as you can because 
they'll ask questions, they'll see through it, and they will want to know that you know what to look at. And if you kind of do a little hand waving and say a miracle occurs here, they will tear it apart. And so, (laughs) yeah, you definitely need to build it up as much as you can, which is tough because if you don't have a project for it, you know, how are you paying for that? How are you putting in your time? Um, But the stronger that is, the better. The thing that I really like about NIAC is that um, 20 year goal is a little, Mm. little bit more down the line, a little bit more exciting. It's not just, I need a new type of screw that works in zero G it's warp drives or shields or swarm probes, reactors and stuff. And so you can kind of have fun with it and it's more exciting to, to look at. So I'm a huge fan of the NIAC program in general. Right. Okay. So they've got, they've got some forms. They, there is some back and forth, as I understand it, then you submit something and they come back with more questions. They have a two-step process where you'll submit an abstract, which I believe is three to five pages, somewhere in that area that just kind of shows them the, the concept. And again, because it is a little bit more sci-fi, they probably get a lot of applications that are uh, infeasible. Hmm. And so they'll, they'll look at that and say, this idea is, is doable, submit a full proposal, which is 20 pages or so with lots of technical details. And a lot of people will get cut at that stage saying, it's an interesting idea. We don't think it's feasible. You've obviously overlooked something, uh, kind of that range. And so they, they cut away a lot of them on that step A, then the step B gets invited. And then if you win that one, then you're in good shape. And that's about the end. But they don't get to give you any feedback or talk to you about it. That would be unfair to the other applicants that didn't care about it. Okay. So it's still a little blind. What do you think that you guys brought to the table at Howe Industries that gave you the credibility for them to say yes then? Well, we do kind of have a ringer. So Dr. Steve (laughs) Howe, my dad, uh, has joined up with Howe Industries for part-time. He's semi-retired and he has 30 or 40 years in the nuclear space industry. Um, He was at Los Alamos. He's been all over. Now he's with us at Howe Industries. And so he has the expertise and the credibility. My work... Um, I think is is respectable, but I don't have the history of that. And a lot of the people playing in these proposals, SBIRs or NIACs, do have enough history and enough background to know what is feasible, what isn't feasible, where the pitfalls are, what they're looking for. Uh, so I think that was a huge help to us mm-hmm. to have him on there. We've got a really strong team of engineers. We've got a good background in nuclear space. My background is also in radioisotopes and power and propulsion. And so I think our our team is very strong. And I think with this topic in particular, we really hit something that has the potential to be very useful in the Mm -hmm. near future and has been looked at. And I think it's kind of a big breakthrough. Right. I agree. I agree. This question, I'm going to read it (laughs) because it comes from my nuclear propulsion uh, expert friend here. Uh, And he asked, I I said, hey, I'm I'm talking to to Dr. Howe here. What do you want me to ask about? And he said, well, tell us about the thermocouple lifetime and how the new thermocouples could extend mission timelines. Right. So that's a great question. Um, the, The thermoelectric generators are solid state devices. They're just small little squares that stick on one side's hot and one side's cold, and they don't have any working fluids or moving parts or turbines or anything. So compared to a dynamic cycle, like a Brayton or a Stirling engine, they last much, much longer. You don't have to worry about seals or leaks or depressurization. And so if you're going to build a deep space craft or probe or power source, and your conversion technology will fail in 
10 years, then having a radioisotope that lasts for 50 years or 100 years is just overkill. You're not getting everything out of it. So the thermoelectrics with their no moving parts will last almost indefinitely. It's just, it's a solid material. They do um, decrease in performance slightly. So they were used on the Voyager spacecraft. Voyager 1, I think, was launched in 1977. It's still producing power, although much less than when it started, uh, due in no small part to the fact that it's uh, RTG and the plutonium source on it is decaying over time. But it's still working. It doesn't fail. It just decreases until it's almost negligible. So our, our time frame with these, depending on how you create your power system, is decades, um, which we think will then enable lots of very deep space missions, lots of electrically propelled missions, which are usually taking a little bit longer to get out to their target. Once you get to the target, you can provide electrical power and the, the conversion system is not really your weak point anymore. It doesn't mm -hmm. fail. You have other stuff to worry about before that fails. Right. Well, and that, that was my question. Let's talk about the other stuff that fails. Uh, CubeSats at this time are meant to be cheap and not live very long, you know, three, four, five years and then die. And if they're supposed to go out to the outer solar system and check things out there and your propulsion system is working fine, what else do you believe needs to be developed in, in terms of small ta uh, sat technology so that that mission to Europa can be successful? So the big thing we're running into now is the radiation field at Europa. Mm. So we can get out there and we can, the actual spear craft is a little bit larger. It's got the CubeSats attached to it and it shoots them out into a swarm. And once they're exposed to the radiation field around Europa, they have kind of a 20 to 30 day lifespan until their electronics are fried and they die. Mm. And that basically is true of just about any electrical system on Europa, even landers, unless they can bury themselves in the ice, are going to get a huge dose of radiation. And so what we would like to see is uh, radiation-hardened electronics that can survive that environment. And even if you're not in Europa, you have galactic cosmic rays that will eventually give you so much of a dose that things start to fail. And it's just so difficult to shield your individual CubeSats if you want to put, you know, four centimeters of lead around every CubeSat, you don't really have a CubeSat, you just have a pile of lead. And so, you know, those electronics are a weak point right now. Um, and, and really that's kind of the only thing that we are, are lacking is holding us back. Other than that, you know, just increased propulsion capabilities, which as it happens is another project we're looking at for CubeSats. Okay. Well, let's dig into that in, in a little bit. Uh, so, we can, we can get the thing out there. It, it still won't live very long because of, of the radiation, no matter what we do, unless we have either a real upgrade. And, and it's interesting. I was asked uh, a couple of weeks ago by somebody else if they knew about any um, hardened electronics manufacturers. And uh, I have to admit, my response was, huh? <laughs> you know, what, was, what do you need that for? And uh, it was explained to me. So that, that, that makes a lot of sense right there. Uh, are there any predicted communications issues? Because, uh, you know, I'm hearing about that it's a very thin pipeline for data to travel back to the Earth from these long distances, right? Uh, and there are missions that have been done apparently, you know, months and years ago that are still sending data back and it's so slow. Will this be an issue for your mission? For ours, um, not as much 
much because of the design for the Spear Pro, we have a, a fission reactor on board that uses these thermoelectric generators. And so we are designing it for about three kilowatts of electrical power. Hmm. By contrast, the Voyager had about 100 watts from its RTG when it started, and now it's down to about five, and it's still communicating. I believe all that it can say in its communications is I'm still alive. Huh. So the data from the Voyager is not particularly useful, but we have so much extra power because we're using nuclear technologies that the communications is uh, just drastically improved. Hmm. And as long as we can then communicate the, the swarm of satellites talks to the mothership and it means hmm. back all the data you want and we can use the, the deep space network and, and have a fairly high data rate with that. But it is a problem for any deep space mission Mm -hmm. uh, power is always lacking and you need that power to get your signal back. So unless you're using nuclear, uh, things get really difficult with that. This is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it, right? And a lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? And, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side. Folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side, it's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company a space company, and that has gone on for a little while, six months, a year, something like that, and it is time, as uh, COVID has made it, to double down or get out. Those are pretty much the choices, right? It's time to invest further in a thing we already know, which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now. Uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or, or stop, just kill the project. And so the good news is, in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for Cold Star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, all this stuff. So... If this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I am excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced, expert space, people who understand space, right? Look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, 
right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanigan from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. He's Troy. I'm Jason. This is the Cold Star Project. You founded How Industries in 2013, and it's taken about six years to get to the point where you were able to get this grant approval. Looking back, is this a typical timeline? Um, is it a product of the, you know, developing the concept and thinking it through and then being able to explain it well enough to get funding? Or could you speed things up? I think that um, it is kind of typical to deal with a lot of rejection in mm. this. Uh, we started the company in 2013, but it was a sole proprietorship and we actually incorporated as a LLC in 2015. And then we won a, a NASA NIAC in 2017, or not NIAC, SBIR in 2017 for a nuclear thermal rocket fuel element. And then in 2019 was the SPEAR and we've just won a NSF SBIR this year for a CubeSat propulsion system mm. called the Thermosat. And so we've won a couple of them, but we've been putting out so many that our, our win rate is relatively low. But again, when I look back at the ones that I sent out in 2013 or 2015, I can, I can see a definite difference in the proposals that I wrote and mm -hmm. what I was trying to explain and what they were looking for. And so definitely having that experience and understanding helps a lot. Mm -hmm. But even in the best case, uh, you're going to lose more than you win and that's just the nature of the business. Right, but sticking it out, uh, I've talked to a number of people, including space lawyers, uh, who are like, hey, you know, I'm two years or four years in my business, and now I'm just starting to get inbound clients. Like, people asking me, hey, can, you know, can you work for me? Can I hire you? Uh, uh, you know, is this normal? Yes. <laughs> there is a period of having to stick it out and, and just survive. So good, good for you for getting through that period. So you were a research scientist at the Center for Space Nuclear Research for four years. Uh, I'm sure many people don't even know that organization exists. I didn't. Uh, so I'm curious what it focuses on and, and what keeping things away from security issues or anything like that, what you were most proud of of your work there. Yeah, so the CSNR is part of Idaho National Lab in Idaho Falls. And so it's a DOE mm -hmm. facility, but it's operated by someone different that operates the the bulk of INL. And so the CSNR focuses on using nuclear technologies for space exploration, very similar to the how industries model of coming up with new technologies and not really shying away from the nuclear aspect of it. So some of the things the CSNR looked at was the nuclear rocket fuel elements, very focused on a tungsten cermet designs. They would look at uh, Mars hoppers using radioisotope power. Instead of a rover, you could jump around the surface of Mars <laughs> and cover more ground. Um, there was fuel encapsulation, uh, and your uranium pellets inside your nuclear thermal rockets have to be designed in certain ways. Lots of materials, power, radioisotopes, fission systems, uh, really kind of the cutting edge in space technologies that's going to help us get to exploring and getting people onto Mars and getting the technologies out into space in the coming years is what they focused on. Uh, the, uh, I guess, project that I'm most proud of was a radioisotope powered deep space probe, which would use a phase change material to absorb the heat from the radioisotope and, and hang on to it until it was time to uh, thrust or use the power. And you could extract it all at once from that molten salt and get huge power levels you could communicate with high bandwidth for 
30 seconds or you could get high propulsion for limited times. And that would allow, again, the same kind of idea as the spear probe. You could shrink your whole system way down, make it much lighter and have it more affordable so that eventually these, these space exploration missions could be launched by private entities or universities or have CubeSats on them, kind of open up all of space exploration for, for those of us that can't afford the NASA budget. <laughs> Right, right. Interesting idea, like a capacitor that's able to just unload like a bolt of lightning, uh, all of its charge really, really quickly. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. So uh, you mentioned earlier uh, that, that How Industries is doing a couple other projects. What, what would you like to share about those? Yeah, so one of the first ones that we got was this uh, nuclear thermal rocket fuel element. So nuclear thermal rocket as in contrast to our spear probe uses thermal propulsion, which will give you high thrust for a small periods of time, once you do those orbital maneuvers. It's kind of what you need to get manned missions to Mars or large payloads out in space because it's, it's fast enough that you don't get galactic cosmic ray dose to your astronauts and everyone dies. And they worked on this project in the 70s in the Rover Nerva program and made a lot of great progress, but then kind of stopped because of materials, uh, restraints and some obstacles. We think we've overcome those obstacles and so we're really pushing for our nuclear thermal rocket technologies now. Um, we're just right now we're starting up this NSF program which is non-nuclear. It's called the Thermosat and it's a small satellite propulsion system hmm. and what you do is you put this, uh, it's about three U's, three CubeSats long and it's got a propellant tank and an optical filtration system which hmm. is a layer of filters that are designed to heat a thermal capacitor with phase change materials, similar to the greenhouse effect. So the the short wavelength light is rejected, or the long wavelength light is rejected, short wavelength passes through, the inside thermal capacitor tries to heat up, but it can't reject that light, and so it, the temperature increases. And then we blast water down it, it turns to a high temperature steam and gets pushed out the back and you have a high thrust, efficient propulsion for CubeSats, <laughs> which uses water and sunlight to fly around. One of our, our tricks that makes this feasible actually is um, lining that thermal capacitor with something called photonic crystals that were developed at MIT and we've partnered with some ex-MIT graduates called Mesodyne Inc. And they, they can really modify the, the light spectrum as it comes in which allows us to get to the high temperature, which allows us to get the high performance and make these things for CubeSats in Earth. Hmm. I like it. it. It's fascinating how steam has been so useful in all, you know, through, through history, right? For the last two, 300 years, it's been just everywhere. So who is the right kind of uh, person or organization to be approaching you and how industries and saying, hey, can we partner together? Do you license technology? Do you sell it outright? Do you build things for other people? How does that work? So our, our business plan right now is to do the research and the new technologies at Howe Industries because we like coming up with these ideas. We like uh, modeling them. We like showing the feasibility and coming up with great stuff. And then we create uh, subsidiaries for the technologies once they get their grants and they get mature. And so the subsidiaries then can go out and find investors or interested parties to kind of grow that into a self-functioning small business. And we we take all the IP that we develop at Howe Industries, and once those get running, we shove it all over there so that they're completely separate and autonomous and kind of grow. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the plan right now. We're still hammering out some details, uh, you know, working with people on getting advice and, and getting those to actually start. Um, as far as collaboration with researchers or scientists, come talk to us at How Industries by all means. We are always happy to to learn about new technologies and work with other people and get new exciting stuff done. We've already come up with, we're always coming up with new ideas. I think the NASA SBIRs were released just today. So now we're all excited about getting new proposals in. Cool. And, and where should people go to get in touch with you? So our website is howindustries.net. And that will link to all of our projects and have all of our contact information and basically go over everything that I just said today. Awesome. Well, let's keep in touch. And as you come up with new developments, let me know and you can come back on the show and we can talk about them. That sounds great. I love to. All right. My guest today has been Dr. Troy Howe, founder of Howe Industries. Thanks for being here. Thank you. This is Jason Canning from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio-only side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists, and so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats, and I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, (laughs) looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening.